Hello and welcome to the Lancet Health and Longevity podcast. It's July 2022 and I'm your host Ben Burwood. This month I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Hussein Yassin from the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. Dr. Yassin's personal view, which was published in our latest issue, reviews the limitations of studies assessing the effects of nutrition on the prevention of dementia. Hi Hussein, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you Ben, thank you for the uh, invitation. Firstly, the personal view was authored by the Nutrition for Dementia Prevention Working Group. Please, can you give us an overview of the aims of the group? Uh, First and foremost, I would like to thank all members of the working group for meeting several times to do this work. Uh, This was an incredible effort by a group, by a team, and uh, particularly uh, Christina McLinden from the NIH that helped support the study uh, the study was sponsored by the National Institute on Aging by an R13 program, and Heather Schneider, Schneider from the Alzheimer Association that uh, provided exceptional support to do all the meetings and the symposium and, and, and get this uh, into a publication. So without these uh, individuals, we would not have been able to have this work published. So the group was formed by and international experts to address really a a fundamental question. Why don't clinical trials focus on nutrition and uh, lifestyle, such as exercise, translate the positive associations of observational or epidemiological research on the relationship between cognition and diet? We, We have seen so many associations between eating a healthy diet and better cognitive outcomes. But when you put these questions into test using a clinical trial, more often than not, most of these trials have not found that this particular diet or lifestyle or multimodal intervention is not translating into clinical benefits. So the Nutrition Working Group for Dementia Prevention met several times over the past two years to debate and uh, address limitations of trials and come up with a roadmap to avoid uh, these limitations and move the field forward. Can I ask you a quick question about the, the makeup of the group? Like, um, where, where are your colleagues distributed? Is it mainly US, UK, higher income countries, or is it a worldwide effort? So the, initially, it, uh, uh, you know, the invitation went to several uh, investigators and experts from across the world, from Europe, from Canada, from the US, And we ended up with representations from several countries, although I would have to acknowledge that we had less representation from underdeveloped countries or or developing countries compared to the Western side of the world. But yes, the invitation was sent out to a large group of authors who have done research in this field. Moving towards the existing research, what have existing nutrition and multi-domain trials shown? As I mentioned in the beginning, largely null effects, meaning that uh, the intervention, whether it's a a diet, a supplement, or a multimodal intervention where a diet is combined with another intervention, has largely not met their primary outcomes, meaning have not shown to have convincing benefit on cognitive outcomes. And we can go over the details of several of these trials, but several have not shown that this intervention is making a difference. So the interventions that are being trialed, could you give us a, like a brief overview of what 
those interventions are. What are the most common ones that are assessed? We have, um, we're regularly told that the Mediterranean diet is particularly health, like healthy. Is that one that's been tested and that's also been shown to have no, no real effect? So let's talk about the interventions uh, as a whole. So you could have uh, a dietary intervention such as the Mediterranean diet. Uh, you can have a piece of the dietary interventions. For example, the keto diet will look at something more specific, which is just keto diets. You could have a supplement within a diet. For example, you can take omega-3s and, and put them to test in an intervention. Or you could have a multimodal intervention where you could have, for example, omega-3s plus uh, cognitive enhancing intervention, omega-3s plus exercise or uh, certain elements of a diet like a low-salt diet or a Mediterranean diet or a an omega-3 diet plus an exercise intervention. So there's multi multiple different ways of doing it. And for the most part, these interventions have not been very convincing. Like uh, among those interventions, I think the Mediterranean diet would probably have the best evidence, although it hasn't been fully tested the way we like it to be in the setting of a clinical trial. So moving on to trials... What are some of the potential limitations of trial results that might have contributed to these null results? Well, this is exactly what we debated and had uh, the experts go back and forth to figure out exactly what's happening. First, we have to acknowledge that there are two scenarios. One is that it is possible that diets don't directly affect the brain and they are surrogates of other things. For example, a healthy diet could be a surrogate of better income more access to clinical care, uh, or certain other elements that are confounding the diet itself. And that's why when you take out that particular diet, it doesn't translate into benefit. But it's also possible that the diet actually works, but the trial is not giving the diet the chance to succeed. Let's talk about this latter aspect where the diet works but these trials are not giving the diet the chance to succeed. We can start by the time it takes a diet to change how our brain is functioning. We know from studies that we have done and others that, for example, omega-3s take uh, a few years to remodel within brain cells. And if you are designing a clinical trial, which typically lasts between six months and two years, depending on funding cycles, uh, you wouldn't, would not have given the diet enough time to change the omega-3s in the brain. And th the fact that you have no effect does not mean that the diet is not working. It just means that the, the intervention was too short. Another aspect that of, of uh, existing clinical trials is the population that's being studied. Uh, in, in several major multi-domain interventions, whether it is MAPT in France or the Prediva in the Netherlands, they targeted a general population. And if you look deep enough, you'll find out that the general population, not everybody gets dementia, not everybody gets Alzheimer's, not everybody gets cognitive decline. So you inherently will get noise. People who are not going to decline uh, may seem as if they're not responding to the diet as opposed to uh, the diet not working. So the group debated that to be able to do a successful study, you have to enrich for a population that's at risk of cognitive decline. And more research is needed to identify 
exactly how to do that, but we know from the finger trial, for example, uh, this this was the Finnish trial that looked at a multi-domain intervention of a diet plus exercise. They were successful in enriching for patients with high risk of cardiovascular disease, whether it's hypertension, obesity, diabetes, and so forth. Those populations tended to have a higher risk of cognitive decline than the general population. In addition to that, we know that APOE4, which is the strongest genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's, is quite prevalent. In white populations, up to 25% of, of white people have one copy of the E4 allele. And E4 is the strongest genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's. So if we can enrich a given study with a high-risk population, uh, the chances of finding an effect is going to be higher. A last point the relationship between the diet and the brain is quite complex. It is possible that as the brain heads toward disease, the diet may stop being very effective because the disease has already happened. The damage is already done. More and more evidence suggests that diets can be better used for prevention as opposed for treatment. In that setting, epidemiology supports that concept. Epidemiology studies suggest that during midlife, a healthy diet is associated with less cognitive decline or Alzheimer's decades later. But when you look at the details of these diets later in life, that association seems not to hold. Uh, the implication is that the interventions might be more effective when you target people during midlife, and that's often defined uh, between 45 and 65 years of age. This is the time where, where you, when you intervene, you can have a, you, you can have a chance of changing how the blood vessels are working, how the brain is working before you get neurodegenerative diseases where a diet may not reverse cell death or neuronal loss. Could you briefly describe the two key approaches to assessing the effect of diet on dementia? What are their key pros and cons? The the group decided after several debates and we they met over like f- 5 to 7 times over a period of 2 years met in person in Denver at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference and had this, you know, proceedings that resulted from the meetings. And the, the, the group overall decided that there might be two ways to best capture how the diet is affecting the brain. One, in a personalized approach, which is rather expensive, laborious, but in very small sample sizes, you choose biomarkers which reflect how the diet is working. You choose a subset of people which are either genetically at risk of getting dementia or not consuming the correct diet. So you do a lot of effort to identify these nutritionally suboptimal individuals with genetic risk factors. You sample the microbiome because the microbiome can reflect the composition of the diet that people are eating. You do a lot of detailed phenotyping, including, for example, brain imaging or blood biomarkers. And then you have a a robust readout. So these, for example, the individuals now who switch to this Mediterranean diet or to this ketogenic diet, you're looking now at the uptake of uh, ketone bodies in the brain. And you have achieved that, yes, switching to the ketogenic diet, increased brain ketone uptake. And then you look at immediate biomarkers of Alzheimer's, such as brain volumes. And you find out, for example, that those who had the ketogenic diet, preserved their hippocampal volume over a period of time, and you achieved your outcome. The outcome here is all biomarkers and mechanistically linked 
to how the diet works in a very fine subset of individuals who have been handpicked because of increased risk of Alzheimer's. Now, that's very clean, and that gives a proof of concept, but you might argue that that's not scalable and that does not may not represent the general population. More importantly, where is cognition in this question? And I think cognition is inherently much more difficult to study because it takes years for individuals to start cognitively declining. So how do we do that? And that, that's where the scalable, large, diverse populations can be targeted into much bigger studies. But to be able to do those, we have to be practical and we have to be pragmatic. There is a potential for now utilizing electronic systems, whether it's your cell phone, your iPad, your computer, to track a large swath of a population. And not, this is not all comers. These are people who are either consuming a bad diet or individuals who have cardiovascular risk factors can be identified through electronic records. And then these individuals will be given um, an easy-to-apply intervention, uh, whether it is switching certain components of a diet, adding uh, exercise regimens that they can be easily implemented, and then followed over time using these electronic devices. This could be your cell phone. Your cell phone can tell the investigator whether somebody has changed their diet or not. And the cell phone itself could have fingerprints of cognition. There are many new applications now being developed on the computer which can track people's memory, can track the people's executive functions, how they're able to cognitively perform, and they're simple, and patients can be, or, or participants can be taught how to use them without even coming to a medical center. Uh, moreover, uh, investigators and their staff can be doing those over the phone as opposed to doing them in the office. Uh, so there are pragmatic ways now to look at thousands of individuals in an intervention setting that are scalable, cheap, and then look first, is the intervention doing what's supposed to do? And this is now the concept of, of dietary patterns or diet patterns using new technology of you know, networks, network analysis. You can gather all this Facebook-like data from individuals who are randomized to this intervention and see, yes, we can see the nodes changing. We can see that this population in this area of England or France or the, of California or the U.S. has now changed their habits. They're now consuming more seafood or consuming less processed meats or enriching in vitamin D or whatever that is the target of the intervention. And once we achieve that surrogate biomarker, uh, we can start asking over the period two to five or up to maybe 10 years, is the intervention now translating into better cognitive performance? If the diet, for example, is focused on mechanisms to reduce blood pressure, the immediate outcome would be are we seeing decreased blood pressure in those who are switching to a low-salt diet? If we achieve that benchmark, then the second benchmark would be is reducing blood pressure by consuming a low-salt diet translating into better brain functions. And then this is where you could look at or ascertain dementia outcomes or cognitive decline. So these are the scalable, large-scale, diverse population at risk of dementia as opposed to the small-scale, high-intensity biomarker studies, which avoid cognition by design, because cognition takes much more time, 
much more noisy and require a more uh, pragmatic approach. So picking up on that, is it almost like a sort of a chicken and an egg type scenario where you where the large big data cognitive study where you look across diet and, and you know and the effect of cognition could you do that first and then follow on with with the more focused precision medicine biomarker stuff as like a as like a follow on to it or do you see them as two completely separate entities oh yeah no no i i agree with you that there's a continuum and they're not completely separate entities and they're addressing perhaps two different questions one is applicable to a very high risk group that requires a very high intensity intervention but cannot be scaled because of cost and time. And one is more designed to address a swath of a population at risk of dementia. And the intervention is designed to be cheap, practical, and pragmatic that can be applied practically in, in a doctor setting, stop eating processed meats. We have this you know, 10,000 individual study in a cohort when they switched from processed meats to an example, consuming X instead, we noticed that in two years, their blood pressure is better and in and, and five years, their cognition has improved. So I, I think they're not contradict, they're not mutually exclusive. You could in fact infer information from this large study and then subset, for example, a subset may absolutely not respond to this intervention and another subset may show a, a much bigger response. And then you can zoom into the subset that responded and try to identify in a small scale, personalized intervention, what is it that changed that much? So you can do more personalized medicine. And the opposite is true. In the subset that did not respond, do, do deep phenotyping and identify genes or microbiome change, changes that prevented the diet from working. So it's equally interesting to figure out who responded, who did not respond and why. How might dietary patterns and cultural nuances in assessing diet be incorporated into intervention trials? That's an excellent question. And let's first define dietary patterns. Dietary patterns represent a complex node of what people normally are consuming. We, we never consume one thing in isolation. I mean, you never go and just eat one particular item. You're constantly choosing different items in your diet. Now, some people have a variety of items that they eat. And they have access to many different diets, whether it's vegetables or meats or seafood or candies. And some people do not have that luxury and they're much more restricted, whether they receive income support or they receive vouchers. And they have only a limit or, or they can only afford a small subset of diets that they can eat. In both cases, we have a very complicated uh, system where humans are consuming different kinds of things. The question is, can we track, can we understand what they're consuming? Can we map it? Can we study it? Because that's more representative of a true diet than giving somebody a piece of salmon and say, let's see what the effect of salmon is going to be on you. Well, that salmon eater could be actually smoking or could be frying the salmon or could be having a lot of alcohol next to the salmon or could be having salmon and fried meat next to it. And another salmon eater could be exercising and doing other things. So how do we dissect this? And I think technology is evolving rapidly to allow us to capture dietary habits. The simplest answer to your question is uh, there are new softwares that can allow people to scan their receipts. 
when they go to the supermarket and extract certain dietary elements after they do their shopping. This information can be coded, sent to the investigator, and mapped. And now you can actually draw an idea or get an idea of this particular participant is consuming X, Y, and Z. Now we do an intervention and we tell people, we like you to reduce salt intake by consuming less cheese or certain diets. And then you keep scanning their receipts when they go to the supermarket. And did you really achieve what you want to achieve? And if you did, is that translating into benefit? Classically, nutritional trials have had problems because either the control group or the intervention group did not exactly follow what the study was about. And we were not able to say if it worked or not because either the control group started eating healthy or the actual intervention group was tired and it was too intensive to add to their lifestyle a whole new things of dietary changes over a long time. So I think having this dietary pattern modeling approach can give us more real-life answers to how the diet works and how dietary interventions should be designed. So it's the improved consistent monitoring of the diet across the course of the study will have beneficial effects in the future. Absolutely, and this is critical for the control arm. Uh, If you look closely at what happened to several of these trials, if you happen to now enroll in a major dietary study, and somehow you discover that you're in the placebo and the active arm, as you read in the pamphlet, is having more seafood because they think seafood is good for your brain, uh, you might say, "Mm, I'm not going to agree to be on the placebo. I'm going to like sneak in some seafood because I do not want to be on the placebo. And then when when the trial ends, we find no differences. So having a live feedback of what you eat during a trial and what your the behavior of a participant during the trial can tell us if the groups are really separated and can help us answer the question whether the intervention worked or did not work. How can precision medicine frameworks based on the assessment of biomarkers and genetics help to inform nutritional interventions and prevention trials? Could you outline some of the crucial considerations for adopting this personalized approach? So is it a way of of linking, as we sort of discussed a little bit earlier on, linking the, the intense biomarker assessment to sort of broader population studies? That's exactly right. So the precision medicine holds the promise that if I knew your genetics, if I knew your dietary habits, if I knew the composition of your microbiome, I could tailor in a specific approach. You come to me as your provider. I do a list of panels and I say, Look, Ben, your vitamin D is low, your omega-3s are low. You're not exercising enough based on these metrics that we are doing. We think that this, these are risk factors for dementia. This is my prescription that includes you know, having more of this and more of that and maybe less of this. And then you would go into something specific to Ben based on Ben's genetic profile, uh, family history, lifestyle factors, and then... Uh, This holds more promise than giving you a generic uh, advice that's given to everybody, because not everybody responds the same way. Uh, In uh, in my personal research, we study APOE4. We know that APOE4 carriers may respond differently to the diet than non-carriers. They may require greater seafood consumption early in life, but the problem is once they start uh, having dementia or having cognitive decline, seafood does not work at all. And A4 non-carrier does not activate the enzymes and the pathways that break down seafood and may actually benefit from greater seafood consumption 
despite being later in life. So knowing that somebody is E4 or not E4 can actually change our recommendations, and that fits into the personalized approach that we were talking about. So lastly, looking again at scalable and pragmatic nutritional trials, what are some of the key considerations for the development of these trials? Absolutely. So we need definitely more research on developing scalable tools. We need more research on developing applications on the phone that can track people's dietary behaviors, uh, applications that can track people's cognition. We need that these interventions or tools to be cheap and to be available to everybody, whether it's going to be in in, in the Western world or the developing world, uh, especially in in high-risk underserved populations. One of the key aspects of the symposium and the proceedings was focusing that really a dietary intervention may have the most value in underserved populations that are economically challenged and consuming a poor diet. Historically, these have been very difficult to have research in because one, you have to travel and get to them. Two, you have to convince them to participate in, in a difficult study. And three, they're quite busy and they have so much on their plate and you're adding you know, another aspect, your, your ask of having them participate in a study. So by doing cheap, scalable interventions in high-risk populations, particularly underserved populations, you, the chances of making an impact is higher. Is there, looking again purely at sort of the technology side, is, is one of the drawbacks the use of technology itself with the populations that you're investigating? Pre- previously, discussions about how sort of a silver wave of internet users. So is there a potential drawback the inexperience of some of the people most at risk of dementia with with internet, with mobile phone applications? Or is that not really a major consideration? No, I, th- I think it is a consideration, but uh, we have been surprised by how fast or how some people have been able to use Facebook. I mean, you know, I was shocked to know or to realize that initially when we were studying Facebook usage, we thought that we were going to be looking at younger populations. And we discovered that a lot of the Facebook usage was an older population. And now the younger has shifted to Instagram and other tools. I think that the older population is catching up. They are on the, they all, most of them, I wouldn't say all, most of them have smartphones. And if you can actually provide something that's easy to use and certainly engage significant others or family members, uh, you can approach more compliance and and you can be more accessible as opposed to driving them miles into a clinical center to do sophisticated tests where you can only apply for a very few portion who are inherently more motivated and less representative. Thank you so much, Hussein. This has been really fascinating. Um, And you can find out more now at thelancet.com. Thank you for listening. And remember, you can subscribe to The Lancet Health and Longevity in conversation with wherever you normally get your podcasts.